This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Spirit of Leadership, Liberating the Leader in Each of Us by Harrison Owen in 1999. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 5, The Life in the Underground, The Basics of Leadership Although my mother and her friends might not have liked the image, I think they operated very much in the underground. From the viewpoint of those in charge, they were definitely off the books and not in control of the normal levers of power. Despite this, actually because of it, they managed to accomplish much deemed impossible by those who thought they determined the nature of possibility. Leadership in the underground was not without its power, albeit power that manifests itself in some basic, counterintuitive, not to say mysterious ways. As we experience the dissolution of the structures and controls by which we have always done business, we may do well to take another look at that elemental world. The return to basics is partially a nostalgic revisitation of a simpler age, but it is not necessarily for that reason, because it may well be that we missed some important things along the way to our future. On the simplest level, what we discover are the informal organization and the informal communication system. But these discoveries, I think, are only the beginning, and a rather superficial beginning at that. Under normal circumstances, the informal system is understood to be more primitive and less sophisticated and evolved than the formal system. There is a sense in which we have intentionally and thankfully left the informal way of doing business behind in our ascent to the present rational mode. The informal system is seen as less, and the formal system as more. The history of organization, as indeed the history of the species, would seem to justify such a view. There was a time when all of us were hunters and gatherers, operating in a very loose and informal set of relationships. As we matured, however, we settled down to create villages and marketplaces. We got organized. Businesses follow a similar developmental pattern. Once upon a time in every business, the entrepreneur walked the land, primal, exciting, but basically disorganized. Then there came a day when rational management emerged to straighten out the mess. Steve Jobs was, re was replaced by John Scully at Apple Computers, for example, and entrepreneurial zeal gave way to scientific management. The system was born. Interestingly, Jobs ended up replacing Scully, but we'll see how that tale turns out. Each stage of organizational evolution has its own style of leadership. The entrepreneurial leader is heavy on charisma, challenge, and pure, raw energy. The leader of rational business is heavy on structure, control, and logical decision-making. Presumably, the second style is an advance over the first, for, after all, the system works, or so it seemed. What happens when the system doesn't work? Obviously, we fix the system. And when we run out of fixes, as we have seen to be do as we seem to be doing at the moment, again the answer seems obvious: return to an earlier state. We must all become entrepreneurs again, or possibly intrapreneurs, to use the current jargon. But maybe, just maybe, our understanding of the entrepreneur and the entrepreneurial organization as a lower form of life was correct. Although the entrepreneur possesses many useful and exciting characteristics, such as innovation and high spirits, most of which seem sadly lacking in the increasingly drab world of the organizational system, it may also be true that you can never really go home again. After all, 
We have certainly had our entrepreneurs in recent days, but as romantic as the cowboys of the business world appear, in fact, the days of the Wild West had their limitations. Are we then condemned to oscillate between the entrepreneur and the rational manager or leader, recognizing the insufficiencies of each, but being unable to find anything new? The problem, I suggest, is that we have been seeking salvation in terms of what we know, while refusing the more profitable, albeit dangerous, journey to the unknown, down to the true basics, and into the underground. We are right in our assessment of the limitations of the entrepreneur. And unfortunately, our emerging judgment about the rational manager, the leader who runs the system, is also correct. The future resides with neither. It lies deeper than that. A true journey into the underground is not to be undertaken lightly. For once we are there, we must confront a number of realities we would just as soon miss. It is not for nothing that we have attempted to construct a rational world in which the churning, chthonic forces lying beneath the surface of any human organization are controlled. Pure, raw human energy or spirit may be awesome and exciting, but it does tend to make a mess. We might start our journey with a story. The Dragon's Tale Once upon a time, back when the world was new, the dragon lived in the deep. Known to the Israelites as Thom and to the Babylonians as Tiamat, the dragon was mother of all, a dark force whose dominion spread from shore to shore. In passion, her awesome power sh shaped and sculpted the land, a cliff of granite destroyed, a dazzling white beach created. Islands and lagoons, sandbars and channels emerged in response to her restless movement. But when she smiled, the seas rippled in delight. Dancing sunbeams made diamonds in the waves, and gentle swells, resonating to her pleasure, caressed the shores of a thousand lands, sending warm tides surging through quiet wetlands, the swampy nursery of all living things. Then one day, by means now lost in the mists of time, the dragon was lured from the sea and banished to a cave. For reasons that were good at the time, it was decided by the powers that were to put an end to the restless destruction and creation of the dragon. Too many towns had found their waterfronts endangered, and islanders had grown tired of losing treasured beaches to the dragon's playful sport. It was bad for business and bad for the tourists. So something had to be done, and off to the caves she went. As things turned out, the, the sea is still roiled by the children of the dragon, but the dragon passes sunless days confined to the Stygian gloom. The ripples no longer mirror her smile. The swells do not resonate to her pleasure. Should despair and anger drive the dragon to leave her gloomy abode, the way is blocked by a guard at the gate. St. George, by name, this fabled knight stands watch with sharpened, sharpened sword and stout spear, keeping the dragon under control. Once, it is said, the dragon broke loose while St. George was off on a coffee break. In the twinkling of, of an eye, the gates were passed, and the violent passion, compressed in the cave, poured out across the land. The destruction was truly awesome. Whole villages disappeared in sheets of flame, and castles retumbled into their moats. For days, the dragon raged, until St. George and a hastily assembled band of junior knights corralled the beast. From that day until this, the dragon has been contained. It is said that the earth trembles with her rage, but very few know the place she has held, and fewer still dare visit. Those who do visit stand far off, protected by the knight of St. George, whispering tales of the day the dragon broke free. Quite recently, however, 
a strange heretical thought has appeared in the land. What if the dragon were not the terrible beast, so horrendously described in song and fable? Angry, for sure, but wouldn't you be angry if you had been locked in a cave for millennia? Perhaps the dragon is only lonely. What would it mean to make friends with the dragon? Leadership, making friends with the dragon. In forms almost too numerous to count, the dragon has appeared as a common element in the imagination and mythology of humankind. The way the dragon has been treated, however, differs widely around the world. In the West, including the ancient Near East, from which much of the Western tradition has emerged, the dragon is an awesome beast, as in the tale just told. Fear is the common response to the dragon, and much knightly valor has been dedicated to keeping the beast at bay and under control. In the Far East, on the other hand, reaction to the dragon is strikingly different, although the basic image remains remarkably the same. In China and Japan, the dragon is also an awesome beast, surrounded by smoke and fire and inhabiting the underground. But reaction to the dragon is the exact opposite of the West's controlling approach. One must learn to respect the dragon and learn to live with it. In lighter moments, for example during the New Year's celebration, people will dance with the dragon. And in truth, nothing of import can go on until the dragon dances. The dragon, in all of its manifestations, points to the world of deep primal power, the surging world of spirit, from which everything, so the story goes, emerges. In the West, the effort is to control, to channel, to render harmless. In the East, the effort is toward alignment, seeking to intuit the flow and move with it. For the West, life with the dragon represents struggle and conflict. And the hero, may we say leader, is the one who does both the best. In the East, life with the dragon is ideally harmonious, and the leader is the one who shows the way. Who knows whether dragons exist? In a very real sense, it doesn't make any difference, for it is certain that dragons existed and continue to exist in our mental image. To the extent that the pictures we hold in our minds tell us something useful about who we are and about who we might become, our Western perception of the dragon suggests that we are very uncomfortable with deep, surging forces that lie beyond our control. That insight, if such it be, might best be left on the analyst's couch, except for the fact that there apparently are a number of dragons loose in our world at the moment, none of which we seem likely to control. Might it not be that there is some wisdom available from the East? Would it not be well to make friends with the dragon? The Yin and Yang of Leadership Making friends with the dragon is not to be undertaken lightly, nor should it be confused with what we might call becoming good buddies. The powers represented by the dragon are real, awesome, and truly beyond our control. Those who assume to presume to assert control, in the sense in which we in the West commonly mean, will discover that the dragon simply either hides out or explodes. Neither result is useful. By the same token, efforts to trivialize, or to be good buddies, are productive of nasty surprises. Precisely when we think we have it all together, things get out of hand. Making friends with the dragon requires a strong sense of balance and appropriateness, which is where the notion of yin and yang becomes useful. The Eastern notion of yin and yang describes the conditions under which friendship may be developed and leadership may be exercised. In the case of friendship, yin and yang are the balance of opposites, masculine and feminine, light and dark, order and disorder, chaos and cosmos. 
They're inherently paradoxical, and many of us in the West do not like paradoxes. Indeed, when we confront such things, something in our mental apparatus says, contradiction. From there, we proceed to decide which element of the paradox is wrong. Our rule of thumb is either or, either male or female, light or dark, order or disorder. Much of the rest of the world looks at the same information and concludes both or and. It is always a question of balance. More than balance, it is necessary polarity. The light illuminates only in the darkness. Order becomes manifest only out of disorder. Female assumes meaning only in relationship to male, and vice versa, in all cases. There is no right or wrong, better or worse. Always, there is both and. For leadership, the polarities of yin and yang represent the range of opportunity, the definition of the field on which leadership will be exercised. It is a large field and a broad range. Anything less will restrict the opportunities for growth. Thus, when the world is seen only in masculine terms, the feminine aspects of warmth, nurture, acceptance, caring, and support tend to disappear. But if the situation were reversed, so that only the feminine was apparent, the necessary masculine elements of challenge, thrust, judgment, and distinction would be lost. Challenge without unbalanced, challenge left unbalanced by caring is destructive, but acceptance without critical judgment is mush. What is true for the polarities of male and female is equally true for order and disorder. Leadership that perceives order, cosmos, as its mission, and disorder, chaos, as the enemy, will totally miss the opportunities present when the established forms and structures fall away, allowing for the creation of new and more appropriate ones. Such leadership will spend its time holding on to what was order, or what was, or order, instead of nurturing the growing edge appearing in chaos. There is no question that chaos is a mess, but messes, like swamps, turn out to be the nutrient seedbed of emergent life. Our Western inability, uh, inability to hold the polarities and accept the paradox of yin and yang has led to extremes of leadership style that, at best, are amusing and, at worst, are horribly destructive. When leadership operates exclusively in the masculine aspect, the single, powerful one takes charge from the top. Decisions are made, but few care to follow because there is no ownership. When leadership swings to the opposite side and the feminine dominates, participative management discusses and discusses and discusses. Everybody owns it, but nobody does anything. There is a time for talk, and there's a time to walk. The question is when and what is appropriate. A sense of appropriateness is critical, but it is also maddeningly elusive. As in poker, you have to know when to hold them and when to fold them. You should ask, when is that? Should you ask, when is that? The usual answer comes back to haunt you. You just have to know. All of which tells us that appropriateness is not a matter of formula. Three, part partic three parts participation to one part decision may look good on the printed page, but it, or any other formulation, simply does not work. What cannot be achieved by formula may be achieved by attention to the flow of the spirit and by continued practice. Just as a champion poker player does not emerge from a single session at the table, and certainly not from a quick reading of the rulebook, so in the domain of the dragon, effective leadership simply does not happen without practice. When the field is known, however, and the cues are recognized by a practiced eye, 
amazing things can and do happen. Spirit will be focused and empowered to get the job done, whatever that job might be. And creating the time and space for spirit to show up is what leadership is all about. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.